hello. Uh, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, as you probably know, we're working our way through the Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Uh, this is part of a kind of a special series I'm doing. I normally work from the Library of America, but uh, but I decided to uh, to uh, make use of some of my books I have in Wisconsin while I'm here, and, and decided to do a read through of of this series, which which I always really liked. I I read it years ago, and then I read parts of it later, and now I'm doing a complete read-through again. And it's just a lot of fun, and it's hilarious, and it's it's just such a great story. Um, I like long books, so... Uh, if they have good characters, and they, they keep me interested with lots of good ideas. And whatever you can say about The Broke Cycle, it's got a lot of great ideas in it. <clears throat> so anyways, that's what we're doing here. Um, so I'm going to, I've been doing about, it's eight books altogether. I've been doing about three episodes. So we'll be doing three episodes per book, but volume two, the confusion is split up amongst these, um, amongst book, books four and five. So I'm just kind of going to work through it through this whole volume over six episodes. Now the section we're going to read about today, I guess, I guess it covers about page 120 to 254 of, of volume two. Um, which gets us really up through the 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 completion of the plan um, established by Moza uh, involving Jack Shafto uh, and their kind of adventures in the Mediterranean. It kind of puts an end to to those various adventures of this gang of galley slaves in the Mediterranean. Now we're gonna. But we actually start here. We have to pick up again a little bit with Eliza and her story as she's still kind of in France and doing doing things for the French king. Um, now, her last adventure, I think, was a really important one. This was her effort to try to buy French timber in the in France to deliver to French shipyards. It seems like a very, very simple matter, but it turns out it was an impossible impossibility to do all the different local polities, all the little different local governments, the bandits on the roads and all that. So delivering overland timber from one part of France to the other uh, was impossible. And it has something to do with like the poor state of like you know, finances in France where really only Lyon has something akin to the modern paper money system we've been talking so much about in this book but mostly it's just to do with the, the the confused nature of local governance in france right so for all of the pretensions of absolutism from versailles where there certainly was a depowering of the nobility and a depowering of the church um, by the king there there wasn't the modern you know institutions of internal commerce that you'd see and this shouldn't surprise us you know it was even the case after the american revolution right where each state had its own currency and its own system and trade between them was sometimes complicated that's why they had to kind of institute the constitution which created a stronger federal government but also you know created uh like free trade between the states and all that but france was much more of a mess because you had all these medieval Systems. You also had a whole bunch of all these bandits floating around, basically coercing them at every stop, every town along the way. And it's complete failure, but it was just a test to see if it could be done, and it couldn't. So then Eliza gets involved really with the like the Baltic trade to get timber from from Eastern Europe to, to 
to Paris or to, I mean, to the French shipyards, not to Paris, but to the French shipyards in order to fuel the French Navy. And now we got more Eliza stuff. And a lot of this, how, how many pages of this stuff? I mean, this, it's not bad. It's like 40, 40 more pages of Eliza stuff that it sets up a lot of important issues going forward. Um, you know, one is, is like poisoning is, is hinted at here. Eliza's money is talked about. Uh, her relationship with uh, Etienne Darkashan is developed. Um, so there's various uh, important um, things that really are going to come to play later in the book. But as, as here, they're not, they don't seem that important. Her relationship with Rosignol is developed a little bit. Um, for instance, uh, one important scene here is she's riding with uh, the Duchess Arcachon, right? And she kind of says, like, you should use our soap. And, and, she's, and Eliza sort of takes this as, like, oh, do I smell, kind of. And, and she's like, no, I'm fine. And then Rosignol says, you should really take her soap. And it's explained later on, it's because there's poison, a lot of poisoning going on in, in Versailles. And, you know, you want to if you use her soap, it'd be safer, I guess. Like the Duchess says at one point, you must never buy soap for, in Paris from strangers, especially with an orphan to think about. And I guess we might as well introduce this character, um, the Duchess Doyonno. Do, Do um, she's the lady-in-waiting to the Dauphine. Um, and Eliza Wright talks about her in some of her letters. I think she actually showed up a little bit in Quicksilver just to be mentioned. It. She's sort of associated with with Edouard Dujex, this uh, this this priest, but she's involved in like occult stuff. So you got alchemists, but you also have pure occultists, right? So this is a nice little addition in the story. I really enjoyed the section in Quicksilver, I mean, in King of the Vagabonds, where you had, you know, the witch's Sabbath going on, right? But this. But in this story, you also have Satanists at high levels of power, right, in, in the court. And she's going to be a fairly important character later on, mostly in her relation to Edouard Dujex. Um, but she's a straight-up Satanist, and she also was a poisoner. And she's, so, she's sort of who's being, she's warning her against, right? But it's also going to be someone that Eliza is going to come to for, essentially for aid um, uh, later on. So that's one thing that's going on. I'm not going to do this directly in order, just because it's all mixed up. Um, now, you also have Eliza beginning uh, a salon uh, called La Dunette, which is, um, or at, at a place called La Dunette, um, which is, of course, something that is, is kind of foreshadowing the Enlightenment. If you study the Enlightenment in history, you know how much the salons were key, and many people have made a big deal about how women often ran these Salons, which gave they weren't the philosophers by and large and the scientists, but by sponsoring salons, they could be part of the culture. And I, I think Stevenson really cares about this aspect of it because he has a lot of women characters who are interested in natural philosophy and supporting natural philosophers and engaged in in these issues. Uh, maybe not as deeply and as broadly as Eliza. Eliza is kind of, I guess, the the fictional apotheosis of all of these women in a way. She does all these things that women in the early enlightenment and the scientific revolution could do except maybe actually doing science herself right but being a conduit for science being a writer to scientists inspiring them um 
and being their lovers, setting up salons, using their funds to support different projects. All these things are things that um, Eliza is engaged in. So she does a lot in this story um, to get us that's that the empower how women could be somewhat empowered in this society through the engine of, of natural philosophy. So that's here. Uh, you also have a lot about money, as always, a lot about money. Um, and here we're introduced to this character, Ponchartron, who is like the essentially the equivalent of the exchequer for France, the finance minister for Louis XIV. And this is right at the beginning of the war, the Nine Years' War, right? And this is going to bankrupt both both France and England. And by the end of this book, The Confusion, basically the book, The Confusion, covers most of the, the bulk of this book this volume covers that, that, that war, right? Which involved France against various Germanic states, the Dutch, England, Spain, although Spain's not talked about too much here, but those other powers and basically both sides get basically fight till they're completely out of energy and out of money. Right. So making money like for the state is, is a big concern of some of our characters, but here, Ponchartron, who has been basically given a royal decree to like double the income of the French state, right? And how do you do this, right? Well, one way we do this is 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 coin clipping, right? You you reissue currency um, with smaller values, right? Small like fixed face value, but less value. And this is this is also kind of one of the things that sort of protects Eliza because she is so good with money, is she's, you know useful in the court for these money issues and these financial issues, uh, financial affairs of various types. Um, you know, other things that protect her, of course, is a relationship to to the sister-in-law who's tied to the to Sophie and those people. Um, so that's that's another reason that protects her, her relationship with Etienne, Don Cachon, where everyone sort of thinks she's going to eventually marry him. So these sort of protect her despite her already being outed as a as a spy for, for William of Orange, even though that's over. There's a wonderful scene where there's a, a party and she's dancing with Rosignol and others. And then the king cuts in and the king basically straight up tells her, like, I know you're a spy. And she faints. And by the time she's going to, she can't explain herself because by the time she wakes up, the king is already gone. And But she's there with John Bard, who she's sort of taken as a as a side lover or another person in her circle of, of friends that she's been building. John Bard being that notorious privateer who... Um, it's going to be pretty important in a later plot, as we'll see, I think, in the next episode. We'll talk about that plot. Now, we don't get much news about England in this entire book. This, You know, we spent so much time in England in volume one and three, or book one and three of, of the series. But England sort of falls off the map a little bit. Uh, it's just backdrop um, in, in many ways. But we still get updates about it. Um, from, so we kind of can follow the political developments during the Williamite and eventually the, the Queen Anne period. Well, that, that's, we're going to be back in England for the system of the world. That's the, where that story centered. But here we, we focus more on the continent and the world. All right. Um, but we do get notes. So we get a letter from Daniel Waterhouse to Eliza where he explains kind of the emergence of political parties uh, between the Whigs and the Tories. The Tories being more the land-based aristocrat uh, force. Uh, and the Whigs being the more urban, merchant-based group, right? Um, and depending on who's in power in Parliament, different institutions will be supported or or undermined, right? And the Junto, that's the name of this book five that we're in, is referring to this sort of Whiggish 
group that was in power for for a while um but there's a little time we spent in in england the the book's actually called the junto so it's obviously important enough to to uh, stevenson for him to name the book uh, after it but we see here like the royal society sort of in decline uh just because of of political machinations right when you had charles ii a more absolutist state he could really have all these institutions supported by him personally right or make he'd make sure they could be supported but under the williamite era and later it's much more of a function of parliament right this is something sophie later in the book is going to complain about where Leibniz says well i did the genealogical work to make sure that you'll you could you have a, a claim to the throne of england and she's like well it doesn't matter because once i become queen of england what am i going to be able to do with it right it's not going to be really my money it's going to be parliament's money and so i can't even promise you your your sinecure and your stipend for your work because parliament's going to have to sign off on it right uh, this is what daniel writes he says the royal society dwindles and may not last to the end of the century it no longer enjoys the favor from the king as it did under charles ii in those days it was a force for revolution in the new meaning of that word but it succeeded so well that has become conventional the sort of men who having no other outlet for their ideas would have devoted their lives to it they have come of age when i did and now to make careers in the city the colonies or in foreign adventures we of the royal society are generally identified as whigs our president is the marquis of ravenscar a very powerful whig and he has been assiduous in finding ways to harness the ingenuity of the fellows of the royal society for practical ends so that's another kind of under thing undermining the royal society is it's it's being redirected towards issues of commerce and money right this is the guy's most clearly symbolized by the essentially hiring of of newton to be the, the head of the mint right so he gives up natural philosophy and focuses on on money of course for stevenson they're kind of connected and they certainly are in the story but you can tell daniel's a bit uh, disappointed about this um, now, there's one other really important thing that happens in this part of the book, this, uh, these Eliza chapters. And that's a dinner at, at La Dunette. So this is um, another, a lot of these scenes here take place in these kind of world dinner parties or these aristocratic dinner parties. Um, but anyways, um, at this party, who comes, none, no one, you know, who, who comes but uh, the Earl of Upnor? All right now of course eliza's already been in contact with bob over this bob shafto over his his the woman he wants to marry right abigail from so he's kind of in the backdrop as, as a bit of a as, a as a villain in the story and we actually get a little scene here where he's telling a story about how bob shafto actually challenges him to a duel and he knows his connection to jack shafter who is notorious in 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 Paris for crashing that party of, of the Duke d'Arcachon, right? That, that Etienne was at where Etienne lost his hand. So it, it gets a good joke. It's, a, it's presented as a big joke for the audience because this basically nobody, who turns out to be a pretty skilled soldier, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works out. But he's, he's a professional soldier, right? He's not a duelist he's not so necessarily skilled with a rapier and those kinds of things but he challenges them to duel nonetheless and basically updor ignores him and just moves on with his life but it's a good for a laugh at this at this dinner party um but the main thing is she finally meets the duke d'arcachon right and we know uh from king of the vagabonds 
that this was the man who originally enslaved Eliza and her and her uh, and her mother, right? As responsible for their separation, and it's the man that Eliza has promised to to, to essentially murder for revenge. And Jack's also made this promise. So he's there, and now there's a couple identifiers that Eliza knew, remembered about him from even though she was very young. One is that she's got these weird albino horses with the pink eyes, right? And that's how Jack sort of figured it out right away. Um, but he also like eats the rotten fish, right? And she first sees the the the, the albino horses, uh, and she sees the association with Duke Darkershawn. And she asks about it. She asks him about it, like, where'd you get these from or whatever? And he kind of like, no, I'm really, I'm the only guy in France who has these. He's a real connoisseur of this kind of thing. Even has one specific horse that has survived all this time, right? From the time Eliza was a kid up until now. So anyways, the point of all this is Eliza figures out that this is the man that she's sworn revenge against. And she, she kind of blanches for a while and uh, is able to get her herself together enough and then she seeks out this duchess of oyanox uh, and this duchess of oyanox uh is this known poisoner and they talk and you know they talk a little bit in code but basically she reveals she wants to murder him and she's like okay i can give you the poison to do that right but don't put it in his drink don't you know put it in his food because his food is all this, that rotten fish that he likes to eat so he wouldn't smell it and you could probably get away with you, you might be able to kill him you might not get away with it but you might be able to kill him right she does warn him that she well, on the one hand she says people are being poisoned all the time in versailles it's a fairly common thing but it's also something that would attract attention but she says you know she kind of helps her and she says here I'll, I'll do it i'll help you do it all right for the rest of this we got a, then almost 100 pages set in book four bonanza and this is all about the plan, the plan to st steal this silver, you know, from these galley ships and then have it brought to Cairo with the escort of this French admiral, Duke, Duke Darkashong again, and, you know, get their peace and get their freedom, right? Using Jack, using Jack Shafto, or at least the knowledge of where he is as bait to get the, the, the interest of this French duke who still wants to get revenge on him. So that's the basic plan. Uh, but uh, mostly this is an adventure story for about 100 pages. Um, and it's some really good stuff here. Um, a lot of nice set pieces. Like, I, it's kind of a dream, you know. It's, it, it's, I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, if somewhere were to make this like a television series or something, you know, this would be a pretty great moment in the series, right? A great few episodes, you know, a climactic moment. Um, but anyways, um, they start out in Spain at San Lucar La Barmeda Bonanza, uh, and they do the mudlark thing where they, they sneak onto the ship and steal the silver. Now, as they're scouting out this ship, I think, I think it's here that Jack realizes that, uh, Lothar von Heckelhaber is involved in this, that he's there, right? He thinks he sees her. He says, maybe it was like a picture but I think it was him. And he knew him from when he was with Eliza and Leibniz in, in Germany, right? They had, he, he knows what he looks like. Um, 
but that's going to be an important point either as well is Lothar von Hockelhaber is is intimately involved with this particular shipment of of bullion now get right to it it's not silver right it's revealed to be gold and it's not just any gold it's magic gold it's it's the solomonic gold it's this um and what that actually means and how critical it is is going to be revealed in the final book but essentially it's it's special gold with special properties that is wanted by alchemists including lothar von hackelhaber who has a genealogical hereditary relationship to alchemy as do many uh, other characters well enoch root himself has been around for thousands of years but von hackelhaber is someone who's really tied to the to this practice of alchemy through his bloodlines now him being there just means that there's some larger story here besides this just being a random silver shipment um, of the of the treasure galleons right so anyways the heist is completed there's some nice action scenes showing them using the bloodlarking techniques and it, there's even like a little bit of a flashback to jack's own when jack's older brother died doing something similar um but eventually they they're able to get these pigs so it's it's not pure boolean it's pigs um but they don't look silver and i think moses says of course it's going to have to be silver because you don't produce gold in the spanish mines it's all silver um but no it turns out it's it's actually is gold they realize and so this has a bunch of consequences one is it's worth something like 13 times or 16 times what the silver's worth by weight so everything they thought they were getting multiplied by 16 right it also means people are going to be a lot more covetous for it there's even one of the characters one of the people of the cabal even suggests this just means we're going to end up killing each other over this um then the question is does the investor does the duke d'arcachon know that this is gold well in fact he does he was involved with uh lothar von hackelhaber in a way for this um i'm not quite sure the details of that but he seems to know uh it's going to be that much more dangerous getting across the Mediterranean. So although it, it seems they're much richer, right? It also, you know, it's kind of terrifying because what it might mean for the cabal and for their plan. But now the next stage of their plan is essentially to get to Cairo as soon as possible, right? And so they, we get this wonderful description of just them t on their galley or it's a galot or whatever, you know, or rowing throughout the night essentially constantly until they get a far enough distance away from from the investor the meteor that's the name of his ship um the pasha's men who are also sort of after him and all these things now it's it's kind of the plan is that they're going to be escorted to cairo right so they can get a higher price in cairo for the sale of the silver but there's also kind of a pursuit right it's it's half an escort but also they're pursuing them I mean, they're so desperate to, for speed, they're even whipping each other. Quote, the day then dissolved into a long, sickening panic, a slow and stretched out dying. Jack rode and was whipped, and other times he whipped other men who were rowing. He stood above men he loved and saw only livestock and whipped skin off their back to make them row infinitesimally harder, and later they did the same to him. The rise himself rode and was whipped by his own slaves. Whips wore on and broke. The galette became an open tray of blood, skin, and hair, a single living body cut open by some pitiless anatomist the benches ribs and oars digits the men's gristle the drum a beating heart the whips raw dissected nerve that spun and whirled and cracked through the viscera of the hull 
This was the first hour of the day and the last. It quickly became too terrible to imagine and remained thus without letting up forever, even though it was only a day. Just a short nightmare can seemingly encompass the century. It passed out of time in other words and so that there was nothing to tell of it as it was not a story. They did not become human again until the sun went down and then they had no idea where they were. All right, so that's their escape from, from Spain after stealing the, the silver. Now, later in the month, this is August 1690, by the way, um, which is around the same time that the stuff we were talking about um, in, the, in La Dunette, where Eliza is starting up the salon, her dinner parties and, and all that is taking place. Um, well, it's a little bit after, right? So the, she meets the Duke. Eliza meets the Duke in july 1690 and he's of course on the meteor in in the mediterranean in august 1690 a month like a month later stevens is pretty good on the travel times here i think and pretty good at making sure people are where they should be based on travel times and all that because a lot of it's important sometimes it seems kind of quick how eliza can go to amsterdam and back but you know i think i think that that was pretty common transport so maybe it's not so so unbelievable. I'm not sure, but, I, but I'm pretty sure Stevenson does research on, on these travel times. But anyways, we next pick up with the cabal in Malta. And this gives us the time basically to pick up essentially some of the other stories of our, of our characters. We, we got the story of some of them, like Dapa. We got the story of Van Hook. We got the story of, of uh, the Geromino, El Das Campanto. Is that his name? Let me make sure I get it. Yeah, El Dos Camperado. We get his story, but we don't get stories for the all of the cabal, right? So this uh, kind of downtime in as on the, as they make their way to Malta, they're able to kind of fill in some of these other stories. Uh, one is Naizes. Now, so Naizes is camel trader from from like the upper Nile. So he's kind of like a, a Bedouin type of person. And, and his story is basically about, uh, well, it's kind of, it's a little bit gruesome, but it involves the, the castration of his, of his brothers. Here, I'll just read it. Um, it does become a bit of a, a running gag in this part of the story too, about uh, his, his brother's wives and things. But, he says this, unlike my comrade Geromino, I am not one to tell flowery stories, and I'll merely relate that on one such journey, many of the men in my caravan fell ill and died. Now we are great fighters all, but we were so weakened that in the mountain pass we fell prey to a tribe of savages who had never heard a word of the prophet, or if they had, they had disregarded it, which was worse. At any rate, it was their custom that the young man could not come of age or take a wife until he had castrated an enemy and brought his orchids of manliness to the chief shaman and so every man of my clan who had not died of disease was emasculated except for me for i had been riding behind the caravan to warn of ambushes from the rear i was on an excellent stallion when i heard the fighting i galloped forward praying that that allah would not let me perish in battle by the time i drew near i heard all the screaming some of it was the cries of men being castrated but two i heard my own brother who was already suffering shouting my name naizi cried fly away and meet us in the cavasarina of al of Abdu Hashim. For henceforth, you'll be the husband of our wives and the father of our children, the Ibrahim of our race. So the result of this is, although he's a galley slave, like back home, he's got 40 wives, like all the wives of these different clans 
men, right, who he has to marry to kind of fill up the role. And he's, his job is sort of impregnate them so all their individual family lines will be secure, right? This is kind of one of those pre-modern uh, devices where a family line is kept intact through, you know, adopting a kid or, or something like that. I know the Chinese would always do this too, where like if your brother didn't have a son but you had two sons, you would lend him one son for his kind of family. So, so he'd have descendants, right? So anyways, and, and kind of out, Naiz even says he's going to kind of re- lend some of these wives to all the different men of the cabal. I guess that never happens, but um, Naiz is sort of the symbolic husband of the, of the clan. Uh, a great story. It's, I love how Stevenson kind of throws in these different little bits of culture from all these different soci- societies throughout the world. And by putting all these people on this galley, you know, as slaves, it allows him to explore these different, you know, slices of life from around the world. Um, now, Vej Esfanian's story is also sort of given to us here about how he was turned into a slave. Now, as we're going to find out later on, some of this is, is not true because he basically allowed himself to be enslaved because he's on a mission of revenge against Jack Shafto. Actually, Eliza and Rosen, you'll know that before Jack ever knows it. It's like a really long plan that the Esfanians, these Armenians, have have implemented. But basically, the story he tells is that he his family felt they owed Jack Shafto for because they lent he he gave him these ostrich plumes that they were supposed to sell, and then he was supposed to take that money to create a stipend for his kids or whatever, and they never did that right because they ran into political trouble or whatever back in Paris. So Vreyashvanian was sent basically to find Jack. And then he gets kidnapped or something. That's not really how it happened. Um, but his story is also told. But he does hint. He hints here that he's got his own plan. He, he kind of tells us. It's a little wink-wink here. But he says, uh, Jack says, they were trashed. The amount of money is trivial. Talking about the ostrich plumes. Do not consider yourself any other under obligation. And Vrej says, it's a matter of principle. So I hatched a plan of my own, every bit as complex as the plan of Moza, but not nearly so interesting. I'll spare you the details and tell you only the result. I was traded to your ore, Jack, and changed you in fact. Though chains of iron are nothing compared to chains of debt and obligations that have fettered us since that night of Paris in 1685. End quote. Four years earlier. Five years earlier, right? So this... You could take this two ways, right? When you know his true intentions, it's, the debts are an o like something that Jack owes him and his family, but that's not how Jack reads it at this time. Jack even just says like, "Oh, you can buy me a few extra pounds of coffee to pay for the ostrich plumes if it's that big of a deal." Um, after we get paid. Now, as for the plan, they also discuss the plan here. Um, you got the ten people. You also have. Uh, some other people get at some other people are hanging around the cabal like uh you got this guy nazar al gurab uh who joins up with them you have like the pasha's men these these ottoman soldiers are sort of hanging around too to keep an eye on them but basically the idea is do we screw the investor or not right especially because we seem to be coming with something the investor isn't expecting which would be suspicious but do we try to get away from him or not Especially now because the investor doesn't fully trust him because they've been trying to give him the slip during their 
travels across the Mediterranean. And anyways, it's kind of up in the air whether they're going to turn their back on or they're going to stab the investor in the back or not. Uh, but I think you can know where it's going as a reader because Jack knows who the investor is and he's got his personal gripes against them, which he doesn't really share with his the other members of the cabal. Now, they actually run into, uh, in another galley, uh, around Malta, they run into uh, Arlong, right, who was, we saw enslaved earlier. He was, in, back in King of the Vagabonds, he was a character Jack met, and Jack gave him some kindness. And once again, the language of debt and repayment comes up here, where Arlong says, I believe only that God preserved me until now so I could show you what I have shown you, and thereby repay you for your generosity in the stables. What on earth are you doing, by the way? And then he you know, explains what he's doing, but he sort of joins the cabal as well. So they get a few add-ons. Also, this the, eventually this um, Irish guy um, joins up with the cabal too. Just basically other galley slaves uh, who, through mixing of crews and things, gets gets involved in it. Um, now there's a wonderful like battle scene too, where Arlon almost dies and he's rescued, involving a Dutch attacking them. Right, so you've got the Dutch trying to. Get them you got the meteor and you got the galler gallerians trying to you know stay one head step ahead of everyone so it's a it's a pretty tense moment but eventually they get to the mouth of the nile and they make it that far and they get there sort of first and so the plan basically involves them getting the gold down to the lower nile where naiza's clans might be able to help them and get off to the Red Sea, right? Um, but that's going to require, some of them have to go ahead and secure transport and all these different aspects of the, you know, all these different things they're trying to put together for the plan. Like, I think they, at one point they used a cannon. It's all kind of complicated and, and it's, some of it's going to slip my mind. But anyways, that's the basic idea they have. Um, but there's a wonderful scene here, beautiful scene where... Um, Actually, I want to say a couple beautiful scenes. One, just the image of Cairo, the age of Cairo, Jack seeing the pyramids, the just wonderful stuff here. Uh, when he awoke, the sun was shining, the ship was underway, and he could see a strange terrain of angular mountains off to the west. Setting up for a better look, he recognized them as pyramids. When he had gotten his fill of gawking at those, which took a good long while, he turned around to face the rising sun and gazed upon the Nile into the mother of the world. Now, this was like trying to comprehend all the activities of an anthill and read all the words in a book and feel all the splendor of a cathedral in one glance. Jack's mind was not equal to the demands that Cairo placed on it. And so, for a long while, he had fixed his attention on small and near matters, as if he were a boy peering through a hollow reed. Fortunately, there were as many such matters to occupy him. The Nile here was as big as the Danube at Vienna, and its course has been crowded with boats laden with grain that had been brought down out of our... Up, 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 out of Upper Egypt. The captains of the boats had been shooting cataracts and beating back crocodiles for weeks and were in no particular mood to make their way f for an unwieldy galette. Many enemies made their way, or made, many enemies were made as they worked their way to the east bank of the river and made the, and made the galette fast to a key. Um, but they're, they're trying to get in position before the exchange goes down, right? So Cairo itself sort of becomes part of the plan, right? The, the people they can hire in Cairo, the geography of Cairo, the location. It's, it's actually sort of presented as part, it's, it itself is part of the plan, right? So starting on two, page 230, we get our 
our kind of a we got a little quote here, a little epigraph from the Memoirs of the Right Villainous John Hall, which is a book that Stevenson often uses to give some flavor to scenes about criminality or piracy or banditry. Uh, quote, friendship is a virtue oftener found among thieves and other people, and when their companions are in danger, they venture harder to relieve them. The Memoirs of the Right Villainous John Hall. So it's about virtue among thieves. And this is really a beautiful moment where all the different members of the cabal, it's now expanded, right? to to others and you got of course Yevgeny and Jack Moza but it added to this is uh the Hindu galley slave who joined up with them named Surrender Not uh Arlone uh this Irish guy uh what's his name again Padraig you know I Stevenson didn't do the best job I think introducing some of these characters they just sort of appear like Surrender Not they, they it's just a line that says oh you just sort of joined up with them along the way but it's fine because we, we learn more about these characters later in the story. But anyways, they all vow basically to to fight to the end to steal this gold and and do what they have to do to fulfill the plan. Van Hook even like swears by his pinky, which he cuts off. Um, other people swear by by whatever they can swear by. And Geromino uh, even says this. He says. Fuck, I don't even believe in God. I swear by all you vagabonds, niggers, heretics, kikes, and camel jockeys, for you're the only friends I've ever had. Uh, a beautiful moment of kind of cross interracial solidarity um, and, and camaraderie. A real honor among thieves moment. Um, all right, so I guess this gets us to our climax of our, of our tale, which is a big battle scene between the Cabal, the French, and the Turks, because the, the Pasha is still wanting his peace, right? So they're stealing not only from the from the Duke, they're also stealing from the Pasha, right? And he's got his own men kind of in, embedded into the group, so they have to deal with them too. But it all the kind of a the climactic moment here is Jack meeting with the Duke, um, and the the idea is like basically if the Duke has this is what. The ostensible plan was if the duke has the signed papers that free everyone right and i think they must have given them a renewed list because surrender not and others are on it um giving them freedom and then their share of the gold then they do the handover right and jack's got it all set up that the gold is kind of buried in with in hay that can be lit on fire and there's oil that can quickly light this on fire and then the gold will melt and jack says it's better if you just work with us because you might get sacked some of the gold but not most of it right it's, it'll be cheaper just to pay us our share right so the duke he offers them up the the documents um which and they go through each of the members of the cabal each having their name right except the name of jack because jack's posing as someone else right he's not posing as himself because the whole idea of the plan is after this we'll hand you over la murderer right we'll hand you over jack shafto so the question is like what's your name and then he he says he he reveals himself at the end of this conversation he says your vault in paris um i am guessing that would be somewhat underneath the suite of bedchambers in the west wing there, where you had that god-awful green marble statue of King Louis all tarted up as Neptune. 
end quote. So this reveals himself as, as Jack Shafto to the Duke. And there's kind of a moment of silence where the Duke pieces this together. And then he talks to him as Jack. He realizes it's Jack. And then basically the fighting begins. And Jack kills the Duke's horse, eventually cuts off the Duke's head. And he says this as he's doing it. He says to the witnesses, right? My men think you're dead now. I won't waste balls on you. In fact, I'll let you live, but I have one purpose only, so that you can make your way back to Paris and tell them the following, that the deed you're about to witness was done for a woman whose name I will not say, for she knows who she is, and that it was done by half-cock Jack Shafto, the murderer, the king of the vagabonds, Ali Zabek, Quicksilver. And then he cuts off the Duke's head, leaving this one witness alive. It's it's a guy named uh, de Jean-Jacques, um, kind of a minor character in the story, but he's like an aide to... Um, to the Duke, um, spelled J O N Z A K or Z A Z A C, Jean Jacques, not Jean Jacques, which is the name of Eliza's son, right? Uh, with uh, with Rosignol. But we get the death of the Duke. Finally, this this asshole is is killed. Um, and then this was followed by this this battle, um, really exciting scene in the streets of Cairo as they're trying to get this gold away. So you have the Turkish soldiers shooting at them. You got like the French uh, musketeers and dragoons and such trying to get the gold. You have the cabal all their, from all their different countries, all their different weapons and all their different fighting styles. Gabriel Gota, this Japanese Jesuit with the samurai sword. You have Geni who can take a couple shots with a musket ball and still keep coming. Even loses a hand. Uh, Everyone's doing their own thing, and everyone has a part in this battle. And even the people who aren't really fighters, they help bring up the cannon, which helps them win the battle, helps them get away. I guess not really, I guess, win the battle, but they, they escape, right? Now, there are two deaths. Uh, Jeromino dies really epically, charging in at the group of musketeers, saying, I'm going, you know, get shot. He says, I'll be dead in a minute, but I have time to kill a thousand of you. So it's a. Uh, it's a wonderfully cinematic moment, I guess. Now, the other person who gets is essentially lost in this uh, is Yevgeny, the Razuknik, Raskulnik, basically the Russian, right? The Russian Yevgeny, um, the harpoonist. Now, again, spoiler alert, I suppose. He's kind of left for dead. He, he gets shot a couple of times and his hand's actually blown off. And he's, you see him kind of... He writes something on the ground, basically saying, leave me alone. Like, I'll be fine. He drags himself off. And Jack, just when he finds this out, thinks he just was didn't want to be burdened with them. And he was going to bleed out somewhere else. So he's kind of presumed to be dead. But he's not dead. Uh, of course, he comes back later with a flail on his stump of his arm. Um, wonderfully creative moments. I, I, I think Neil Stevenson really has a thing for, like, bizarre weapons right you of course in snow crash you have the those those weird glass knives that raven uses and you have the samurai sword things like that the weird dogs uh in that book so he's just having fun with the different weapons and different different characters and the different fighting styles and anyways, they eventually escape with not all the gold, because that's another thing. You've got like the crowd of, of Cairo stealing the gold along the way. So they make it with like two, th- like three fourths or 
three fifths or some amount like that of the of the gold from the original heist. So uh, and they make their way across the upper Nile to the Red Sea. Um, and that kind of ends that, that sort of ends this part of the story, right? It doesn't end Bonanza because uh, we still have the whole rest of the world to go around. They, they really started in a way. Um, but it ends kind of this the part it ends the part of the plan, I suppose, at least the plan as far as Moses Moza is concerned. Um, and they're free and free to to go where their their heart leads them. But we'll pick up on their story. I don't think next time in the next in the next episode we have only the junkdo to talk about. Um, there's a few mentioning of, of what was going on with Jack Shafto, but it won't be till uh, the the episode after the, the the two episodes from now when we'll return to see to pick up with uh, Jack Shafto's story a couple years later in India, three years later to be precise in India, where the cabal still sort of mostly together, split up somewhat, but but still mostly intact. So, I guess that's it. Yeah, this is the fun part of the book. It's certainly a memorable moment. Um, thematically, I guess not as strong. I mean, this, the same common themes we've been seeing throughout this text are still here about money, about uh, how money kind of is an equalizer of, of, across classes. Um, some of, you know, but really mostly this is more drama. Uh, in this section action in the case of the story of Jack Shafto and kind of personal drama with the story we got from Eliza. But uh, we'll kind of move back to some of the more thematic issues of, of politics and money and, and war in the next episode. So, um, so that's what we'll do. Um, so anyways, if you have anything else to add, I know I left out a lot of details here. Um, but that's okay. I think I got. I think I said mostly what I want to say about this. Um, if you're reading along, the next episode will 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 take us up to page four, twelve, or so, um, and uh, we'll cover mostly uh, the the planned invasion of of England and the failed the failed invasion of England, I guess. So uh, that's it for now. Um, let me know what you think about any of this stuff, and I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks for, for listening.